Hello and welcome to the Tortoise Shack Sunday special. Um, I'm the host, Tony Groves, and I'm joined by my co-host, Martin McMahon. Martin, how are you keeping? Not too bad. And yourself, Tony? Listen, it was a bright, sunny morning and uh, it was dry. That's all we can ask for. Um, I do want to remind listeners, a couple of, literally a handful of tickets left for Wednesday evening in the Sugar Club. Um, it's fully seated, so tickets are num- limited and we we, had to, we said we'd limit it anyway, given the situation. So um, should be table service, should be, should be have your COVID certs in your hands, guys. We'll we, we be making sure it's all done as, 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 as well as possible. Um, and I think we have a hell of a show lined up, but I, I will say more later on in the week when, when we get there. Um, just before I get to that, I do want to um, to, to mention that the last few days we've had, I've had a lot of feedback in relation to the podcast that we did with Konstantin Gordiev. I think, um, I think it was, I think it was well worth doing. And I'm glad that we speak to people who maybe have come from a different side of the fence economically and in his outlook. And I think you'd actually be pleasantly surprised. A lot of people, I felt like a headline writer. You've read the headline and you haven't listened to the bloody podcast. Yeah. And so, Constant, Constantine is, you know, the guy is insightful, Tony. No matter what else you think, he's insightful. And he does see a big picture of economics in the global picture. You know, I like listening to him and I'd be diametrically opposed to his economic point of view, but I like listening to him. You're just opposed to everybody. Anyway, <laughs> we, are, we are delighted to be joined. We've, we have a great panel lined up today and we are joined by the SOC Dems uh, councillor for Clontarf, Catherine Stocker. Catherine, thanks for talking to us again. William from Mike Tony, I'm delighted. We have uh, our regular contributor, uh, Good Friday, Good Friday advocate, uh, writer, and ad- activist, Emma D'Souza. Emma, how are you keeping? Afternoon, all. Thanks now, for having I- me. Good. Um, uh, we will have Craig Hughes, who's the political correspondent with the Irish Daily Mail, who had one of the scoops of the week shortly. But Emma, I do want to come to you first because um, we say it every time. But when we started having these conversations, maybe over a year ago at this stage, we talked about the fact that there was too many people, bad faith actors, people who weren't going to be impacted, risking young people's futures by by promoting violence. And we saw an example of that this week in, in the North. And unfortunately, two young men were arrested and the, and the people who put, put them up to it seemed more than happy, more, more than happy that it happened. Oh, yes, I'm sure they were well pleased, uh, the people in the background that were orchestrating young children and teenagers out into the street. Um, As you say, Tony, we've been here before, you know, back in uh, Easter, we had a number of disturbances here in the north. And once again, we have, uh, I suppose, the outworkings of a lot of the rhetoric that we've seen from political unionism, uh, the burning of the bus and the hijacking of it this week. Um, that was one incident. Then we had also at Lanark Way as well, where a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old were arrested. You know, this, these are, are young people, children that are getting caught up in what is really, as I've said time and again, um, a lot of rhetoric and electioneering ahead of the assembly election. So we saw that um, there was uh, an attempt to, I suppose, attribute the fact that this was a opposition to the Northern Ireland Protocol once again. Uh, but I don't think there are too many 12-year-olds that I know that would be attuned to uh, complex trade agreements or that would be uh, too fussed on going out into the streets to uh, you know, protest or cause trouble when it comes to something as complex as the Northern Ireland Protocol. So once again, it's just young people being used as fodder for a political agenda. And it's also really important to keep reaffirming the fact that you know, since the Good Friday Agreement, we have experienced pockets of disturbances. This does happen um, on a pretty regular basis. And it often happens in communities that are really left behind and abandoned, steeped in deprivation, that have severe poverty and, and other issues left behind. So there's a lot of different complex uh, background issues there that get caught up and get blanketed under uh, a political agenda. Yeah, and I think that's fair. We, we've, we've spoken to the to the children, the, the um the equivalent of the ombudsman for children, excuse me, I really fluffed that. But And we've seen how the, the social deprivation that we talk about across the island is one of the key drivers of this. But again, it's been politicised and it's been pushed on. And we saw another, I can only call it political um, manipulation, I want to call it maybe it's sinister might be a bit strong, but it certainly wasn't very pleasant in terms of what seems to have gone on this week with the um, with Queen's University uh, human rights lawyer and, and really a top guy in Colin Harvey, who really is someone takes this seriously and does a lot of great work. This, this, Emma, this is political interference. Surely that the DUP are blocking his appointment to a panel. 
Well, listen, any of us that work in the field of human rights in Northern Ireland will not be surprised uh, by the DUP's actions in trying to block Colin Harvey's position. I know some people were saying things like nationalists need not apply, but you know, that really is actually something that's happening here uh, in terms of Colin is being blocked despite his decades of experience uh, in human rights and equality in Northern Ireland. And he's being blocked because the DUP uh, have an issue with his uh, position on the constitutional future of this island. And, you know, it's really not the first time uh, that unionist uh, elected representatives have targeted Professor Harvey. Uh, there was a real substantial uh, campaign from unionist representatives to try and remove him from his post at Queen's. So I think we really have to be uh, attuned to what's happening there, uh, you know, because academic freedom, freedom of expression, all these things are being undermined by the DUP's attempts to, I suppose, silence uh, Colin Harvey as a political actor. And it's a real serious detriment to the future of rights progresses in the North. There, there shouldn't be the structures in place to allow that to happen, though, Emma. That that's it, it hints at a deeper problem. Yeah, I mean, actually, the structures that we have in the Stormont Assembly really do need to be reformed because there's a lot of, um, I suppose, abuse of mechanisms that were intended originally to protect human rights and to progress um, equality in this region, and they are distorted and abused time and time again. I mean, if we look at things like the uh, cross-community vote, which is now being used as a veto, um, it was originally intended in the Good Friday Agreement to actually protect rights, and uh, instead it's been turned on its head in the 2007 St Andrews Agreement, and now being used to block I Irish language rights, even used last year by the DUP to block COVID-19 regulations. So it is just a system that allows for the perpetuation of divisive and sectarian politics and needs to be reformed. Going to pause the podcast for a moment. It's the beginning of the month. Um, this is when you get to avail of a sample kit, I'd imagine, because you get to pay your five quid and you get a full month, and then you see if you don't like it, you just stop it at the end of the end of the end of the month. It's your, it's your, it's your uh, trial period, I'd call it. You know, geez, we're not going to make money that way. Sign up for twelve months, Tony. 12 months do the 12 months option I, I i get that but i mean if you just want to see what's actually there behind the paywall there's a lot going on last week you've missed out on podcasts with um kathy davy and siobhan luff you've missed out on podcasts with the muslim sisters of era you know we, we do get these out but they go behind the paywall to go to patrons and you get a consolidated um rss feed so one-stop shop all the podcasts that are on the network come out into your feed whenever they're whenever we basically published them a few minutes after i can put them together and that's 550 a month so i would say to you it's the start of the month try it now um and i'm only I'm, i know that sounds that we're giving you the sales pitch now i want to tell you that we actually would love you to join us because we really do need the help yeah we do we absolutely do we we put these podcasts out so that everybody can listen to them and the aim is that those who have the few bob can can give us the few bob to keep it going for everybody so just remember that that uh place you have to go to it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise and just come on in sign up for a month look if you don't like it after a month nobody's keeping you here let you get back to the podcast we'll talk to you soon thanks what way can we reform it emma well i think there's a couple of things that need to be reformed one is there needs to be a look at um, assigning first minister and deputy first minister for a start okay because there was a lot of conversations happening now around what happens if alliance uh, comes in the second spot in the assembly election, will they be able to nominate because they don't designate as unionist or nationalist? So there needs to be a reform in the structure at that, at that point. And there needs to be a restructuring of the cross-community veto, and there needs to be the inclusion of all MLAs in these votes. So at the moment, if there's a cross-community vote, those who don't designate as unionist or nationalist aren't able to cast a vote in that vote. So it's very exclusionary and perpetuates this us versus them politics that we that really has been holding this region back for so long we are we will be talking to colin himself professor harvey himself actually later on this afternoon and it will be out in the patreon feed as soon as i get it done and um, so um, we'll go into more detail there but you are right to point out that this has been an ongoing thing he's received more than more than more than some more i would call it intimidation in in some in some aspects so uh, we, we but we will we will we will move us on a little bit and i do want we have to talk in the week that was uh, because it's been COP26, it's been a lot of uh, people talking about what's what's right, what's wrong, and, and how, how we're going to change, how we're going to tackle the world and, and fix it all. But, um, Catherine, I know you you were active this week um, in terms of 
looking at the climate action bill or the, the plan that, that that we've launched and how we, it's going to be dealt with can i get your sense of of the first of all the broader section for ireland and then maybe something along what's actually happened so far with the cop 26 meeting um so in terms of the Irish Climate Action Plan and, and the Irish government approach to it, Tony, as you know, like we have signed up, say, you know, at COP26 to a 30% methane's it, uh, emissions reduction. And then when you bring that home, it's actually 10%. So, you know, what we're signing up to on a global stage does not tally with what we're delivering at home at all. And that's really, really worrying. Um, and that's something that Roisin Shortall raised with Mihal Martin in the doll uh, the other day. And he told her she was being uh, negative and nitpicking and X, Y and Z. And then interestingly, they, they sent Leo Varadkar out on Friday to do a raft of uh, radio interviews on this. And he basically said the same thing to Ornia Lawler on Morning Ireland. He said to her when she tried to get into any of the detail of how we would deliver the um, emissions reductions, he told her she was being negative. So that's obviously the line they've agreed. You know, if uh, if you question us, you're being a, a negative um, doomsayer. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, one of the other things that really, I suppose, stands out from our own approach is that we are just not committing the funding we need to commit to this in terms of making it happen. Like there's that headline figure that's out there at the moment of 125 billion to deliver the changes we need to make. But, you know, the government are openly admitting that most of that will fall to um, private business and to individuals. And, you know, that's that's actually just not going to work like the vast majority of people are not going to be willing to take on even low cost debt which is what they're they're suggesting of 50 to 60 thousand to retrofit their homes or like the line Leo Varadkar was peddling on radio was well you know everyone replaces their car in a 10 to 15 year life cycle anyway and we're just asking people to move to EVs but normal people most of them don't buy new cars. They buy second-hand cars. They might replace it, but they're not replacing it with a 25,000-plus car in the vast majority of cases. Um, so, I mean, it's hugely problematic. And what really interested me, again, across those interviews that were given, uh, was this line repeated on all of them, the only money that government has is taxpayers' money. So if we invest more public money in this, we're spending your money anyway, so you might as well spend it yourselves, essentially. And that's just categorically untrue. I mean, the government has access to uh, very low-cost borrowing that could be used to invest in capital projects on this um, and to European funding. So, I mean, essentially what it boils down to is, are we going to tell our children and our grandchildren that we let the planet burn because we were adhering to the fiscal rules? Well, we, did, we, did COVID, <laughs> we did COVID on the cheap and now we want to do climate action on the cheap. And 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 we saw that in the, last, the most recent budget, the fiscal rules, we had lots more space to spend lots more money because our tax take is gargantuan. We're one of the highest... It's we're not allowed to say we're a tax haven, but clearly we are when our corporation yeah. receipts are running so far ahead of everywhere else on the globe that it's put us in such a position whereby we could actually have took an extra two and a half billion this year, never mind what over the next coming years, and still we could aim to balance our budget within the fiscal rules. I I, I just I also want to take issue with the idea of these low cost loans. They're not low cost at all. They're they're actually exclusionary and. One thing that concerns me, and I've said it often now, is that I, I firmly believe that so much more has to be done. But if there's no, where are the voices? Where are the working class voices? Where are the traveler communities? Where are the where are the people who've already been left behind? Um, and where is their place in this? And I do think, unfortunately, the uh, the the agenda so far will make uh, some of the climate action a middle class hobby whereby, you know, that's a pursuit for people who can afford 60 grand to retrofit their homes and have a Tesla. And also, by the way, they'll have a Tesla, but they'll still keep the Volvo SUV. <laughs> and, and there's the other aspect too, Tony, that, and it, it's come out this week that the, the top 1%, even the top percent, are the biggest carbon producers. I, I, I get that, Martin. And look, 
we can de- we can pressure can come from below to change that. But what has to I, if we're going to ask other people to make changes, there has to be more carrot and less stick. And I just don't feel like there's this that in uh, and even in you know Daniel Murray's piece interview today in the Sunday Business Post, he refers to the fact that Eamon Ryan has pretty much admitted that the the targets that they've set they need to be ramping them up now, not not top loading them on the end. And we need every sector to start de- developing. And we've already seen this week that. Some sectors, I hate this. It's 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 funny because sacred cows are sacred cows. It appears, um, <laughs> so it's it's dangerous. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and I think, um, you know, the the one thing that is to be welcomed in the climate action plan is that it has reintroduced reintroduced a just transition commission on a statutory basis, and essentially that was in the program for government, and then they tried to move away from it and. Um, it was only that the opposition pressured them on it. And actually, I think Jennifer Whitmore reintroduced a Green Party bill from a number of years on it. So reintroduced their own bill for a just transition commission. But I think that's vital to make sure those voices you're talking about are heard, to make sure that women are heard and working class people are heard and the travelling community are heard. And I think it's vital that we do the same at a, a global level in terms of the global south uh, who are going to be most impacted by this uh, being heard, you know, um, because I think absolutely like the, the the plan as it stands. And I know this is, I, I know the idea of a Green New Deal can sound a bit buzzwordy. And I know the phrase missed opportunity is also a bit buzzwordy, but it is a massively missed opportunity for a Green New Deal that restructures our society and our sense of community and you know how people are employed and what they do. And there are little things that for me stand out that we should be campaigning on altogether. Like say the campaign for a four-day working week. Um, I think for people to live in the sort of meaningful, sustainable ways we're asking them to live in terms of how they travel, in terms of how they shop, in terms of how they eat, in terms of all of those things. It's incredibly hard to do a 40 plus hour working week and mind your kids or your elderly parents or whatever and recycle properly and shop sustainably and X, Y and Z. And actually changing the way we work and reducing working hours and all of those things would have a massive impact on people's ability to to make those kind of changes that we're, we're asking of them. So I think all of these things are sort of connected to my mind. And also people with more time have more time to be involved in community activism and political activism in all of those things that we're going to need from the bottom up to push this uh, this change. I agree. I think there's all it. There's again, go back to um, actually the globe, you refer to the Global South, the fight inequality in, um, organization who we've dealt with previously on the podcast um, uh, have, have called on, have said that COP26 is not going to get it done and is not, it's going to leave developing countries behind. And, you know, I hope to talk to them late next this week coming. So hopefully next Friday, Saturday, we'll have uh, a podcast where we'll actually have the voices from the global south telling us what, what their opinion of it is, as opposed to uh, a, uh, a white middle class man giving you uh, his take on it. But it, it, Emma, if I could ask you, because the climate challenge is seems so vast and yet we're still. We've talked about COVID. We've talked about the the the, the numbers north of the border and, and in the south. And yesterday we saw there was a, a meeting in Dublin where they you know they talked about the future, Ireland's future, and the panelists all gave their opinions on how it could happen. But one of the things that actually was interesting was um, the leader of Sinn Fein, Mary Lou Macdonald, said that um, healthcare would come before flags. Uh, and when you think of that in the context of queues now or, or, you know, people waiting for procedures and the health service, we have we seem like, you know, we're banging this drum, but nothing's getting done, Emma. No, it is not. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, what I think is really needed is um, a number of all island structures on how to start formulating um, a plan on how to address some of these issues. So, you know, we're talking here now about climate, uh, you know, why don't we have an all island forum uh, for climate justice on the island of Ireland? Because, you know, this stuff is the same both sides of the border. Um, so I think that's a great structure. Um, why don't we have an, an all island youth forum uh, for young people? Because we find that young people across the island are unified in a lot of the same issues, but they don't have a space to be able to have these kinds of debates and discussions on how they can have a more joined up approach. 
why don't we have an all out citizens assembly that can look at issues in terms of uh, healthcare and housing crisis and all the issues that are affecting um, people across this island and that will be really the deciding factors in any referendum. And I think that um, the government's reluctance to have any of these structures is really baffling because you don't have to go in with a preconceived outcome. You can go in to have a debate and a discussion, and that's what these structures really do. And I come at that from the, I suppose, the position of having the All Island Women's Forum, which I'm chairing, and we find that that structure, that forum, is an incredible space for cooperation, intercommunity links, and just looking at issues that, even though at the moment we're two different jurisdictions with different uh, legal systems, there actually is a lot of space for cooperation across the island if you just create an environment for it to begin. So I think that what we really need to see here is the government uh, getting more involved and changing tact so that organizations such as Ireland's Future and the other civic forum groups that are all trying to organize these spaces have better resources and government support to create an environment for discussions around these topics. It's not Do you mind surprising. if I come in on that for one second, Tony Martin? Just um, to say, obviously, Emma has way more expertise and lived experience on this than I do, but um, I grew up in Cavan. I'm from the border counties. My father's family would have been from Tyrone. So, you know, I've always been very interested in, in what's happening. And I think that call for like an all-island exploration of how we get to a referendum is really vital. And two things I'd like to add to what Emma said in terms of addressing that are uh, education in Northern Ireland and the way that education is segregated um, between the faiths and uh, the different communities and you know a change to that to my mind is really vital like I think it would be a lot harder to weaponize children in the way that you're discussing and the way that they were this week if they weren't segregated into different communities uh, through the school system and the other piece I think we as a state need to be set need to be you know really moving on in terms of moving towards a referendum on, on a united Ireland is the separation of church and state. I think we cannot have a united Ireland while 90% of our schools remain under Catholic church patronage and uh, our hospitals and all of those aspects. So, you know, I'd love to see some of those changes up for discussion at, a, a, a you know, an all-Island assembly that, that looks towards a potential referendum. Sorry, yeah, maybe just to come in on that, actually, because, you know, uh, education, educational reform is one of my favorite topics for anyone that reads any of my work in the Irish Times or the Examiner. I'm never not talking about how it's an absolute disgrace that our education system is so uh, segregated. Um, but there's other things as well here in terms of, OK, yes, the North continues to have 93 uh, percent of the schools are segregated. Um, and in the South, over 90% of primary schools are still state-funded and Catholic run, uh, Catholic church run. So these are really big issues that are actually the same on both sides of the border in terms of how there's not really a space for integrated education. But there's also a real gap in how history is taught in the island. So, you know, there's a, a recent survey done, I suppose, last year now, that showed that there was a difference in terms of how our history is taught between Catholic and Protestant schools in the North. But also, if you look into the South education system in terms of how the Good Friday Agreement is taught, in terms of how uh, the history with Northern Ireland is taught, there's a lot of significant gaps there as well. And that when I really looked at these systems, I find that we're really dealing with three different versions of our shared history on the island of Ireland. And that really is not conducive to building understanding. And just further on that topic of trying to create a space for education, um, in January, the All Out at Women's Forum will be having its first in-person event. We're having it in Northern Ireland, uh, in County Fermanagh, my neck of the woods, all being well. Um, and we have just decided on the topics for the forum's discussion that day, including panel discussions, which is going to be um, all island education and education as a tool for reconciliation. So those topics around how do we, uh, you know, reform the education system to make it more inclusive for the diverse and plural society that we have now uh, will be covered by the Women's Forum in January. Sorry, we are joined by a uh, political correspondent of the Irish Daily Mail, Craig Hughes. So I will I want to go to Craig, if you don't mind, guys, because um, Craig, you had a story yesterday about uh, the uh, very much in keeping with with my understanding of how, how the state is going to deal with things. They were going to send uh, representatives out to uh, seek to bring in more foreign capital. And in that, you know, in effect, bring welcome in more vulture funds. Um, and it got people very agitated yesterday. 
yeah, that's right, guys. Um, I guess the story we had yesterday was um, showing the interest in the Department of Finance to calm the market after the initial announcement in May that the government was going to introduce 10% stamp duty um, on institutional investors buying uh, bulk buying of homes. But what we saw yesterday was, in the meantime, between the announcement being made that this tax would be introduced to the point it was being legislated for, that it was diluted so much that actually there was no impact on these funds at all, barely, because um, the ultimate deal that the state came to was that um, if a fund was to buy bulk purchase homes, the stamp duty wouldn't apply if uh, the homes were leased back to local authorities. And this is a pretty sweetheart deal for, for the funds because they had a guaranteed client for 25 years, all the rest of it. Um, and the emails that I was showing uh, internally in the Department of Finance where that market was spooked that without these funds, the homes couldn't be built. Um, and that really, that the Department of Finance and Department of Housing had placed no sort of weight in these funds to deliver the target of 33,000 homes a year um, that they planned for in Housing for All. And and Craig, I think it's really important that you laid it out in that way because that's the framing here. But we have to wind the clock back to say rebuilding Ireland's project when, uh, not under Simon Coveney's launch, but when Owen Murphy took over, he introduced what is called enhanced leasing, and that enhanced leasing is in effect twenty five year leases with guaranteed rent for these funds. That in so they will then receive the the, the rent that they're going to get on on the units, and at the end of twenty five years they still own the properties, even though the state has effect effectively paid for them over again. And the emails you've shown have shown that this is actually they believe it's the only game in town, um, and it's following in 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 terms of and I, again. You know, you're you're the reporter. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's in keeping very much with. Uh, I I'm sure you've seen the video that I recorded of of Tanish to Leo Varadkar talking to these funds in April of this year, when he said, "Stick with us," um, that you know we would bounce back and we would be back business as usual. It's a it's a difficult thing, um, Craig, to 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 square that with the nest with the housing crisis and housing affordability when when the Department of Foreign, uh, the Department of Finance are, and Department of Housing are going to look at this model as the way of delivering those 33,000 homes? I think the point they would probably make is that they need 12 billion euros each year to build 33,000 homes a year, right? And they've stated that 6 billion of this needs to come from the private sector. So be that from institutional funds, from private people doing, doing mortgages or, or any private equity. And um, so that's the figure they've put on it. Um, and I don't think I did. They're, they're saying that they don't have the capacity to go beyond that six billion figure of the twelve, um, to meet the demand. So they're simply saying that without these funds, the houses wouldn't be built. And what one economist said to me the last day, I think we quoted him from, from Good Body, was that you know a lot of apartments in the country wouldn't have been built in the last few years if it wasn't for capital from internet in institutional fund, funds who were there before the building started. Um, so that's the counter argument to it. Um, and given the shortness of supply, they would argue that it doesn't matter how we get these homes built. We just need to do it. I, 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 again, it's funny you say good bodies because it was on a good bodies conference call uh, webinar that, that the Tonish was speaking to the vulture funds. It was good. It was hosted by good bodies. Um, and the last time we seen a dip in the IRS REITs and the Hibernias and, and these uh, was post general election 2020 when there looked like there was a possibility of a left leaning government. So, you know, there definitely are spooked by the idea of changes and, and political I would we'd say political change. They may say political instability. Um, but the orthodoxy speaks to going back to last Sunday's piece by Killian Woods in 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 the Business Post, where you know they were giving out about the ESRI, uh, saying we need to build more homes and we need to we need to borrow more money. So the ESRI had a different idea to it. Just if I could ask you one one question in terms of that framing, though, I mean. The, we spoke to Konstantin Gordiev the other the other day, and he, he spoke about the economic orthodoxy versus the 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 um, how how the world has moved on. There does seem to be an, an element of within Ireland of of economic capture, and the, the idea that this is this is what we we decided in at the end of the global financial crisis, and we haven't moved um, because you're saying there's you know we need an additional six billion. But we know there was already two and a half billion more could have been taken in this year's budget alone. So, so Craig, there's there does seem to be institutional 
reticence to, to, to change with what's actually happening internationally. Yeah, and I think there's there's um, a few stories that I'm going to be writing at the start of this week um, in relation to the documents that I've received that gives a kind of a blow-by-blow blow of the Department of Finance's thinking on, on all of this. Um, and, you know, without, without saying exactly what, what, what their view would be completely, um, it seems to me that they feel the level of debt undertaking taken already by the state is um, too severe. and that it is impossible to add to this. And they referenced the ESRI report in that. They also criticize it for some of the assumptions that they make in their predictions. Um, but they're quite um, they're quite clear in what they say. And again, this is one of the stories I'll be writing in the next few days, that they don't feel we can add any, any further to the national debt. And it's kind of interesting because it makes me think, okay, well, if Sinn Féin were in power in the morning and Ono Brain wanted to do with the ESRI said, do with spending, all the rest of it. Um, how the Department of Finance would, would suddenly find that six billion? Because if, if you're going to, if that's what they're saying, it needs to be six billion. Where do you find that from? And that's always going to be a tricky question. And that's quite a lot of a lot of money in, in the grand schemes of a budget. Craig, I understand again, and I'm looking forward to reading the pieces. I just think it's of a mind, it's of a mindset that shows there. The argument always comes to people like me, people like you, Catherine, that your arguments are, are ideological. But it does appear to me that there's a there's also an ideology within departments that, Craig, I think you've pointed out quite rightly, that if there was a change of government, how much change could they actually bring to bear within the departments? And Catherine, I know, you know, for example, you looked at the O'Devany deal recently. It's it's gotten it's gotten worse from what it what it was. It's been it's been changed again, and now we see that that may be the template when it comes to, for example, the vote on Oscar Trainer Road. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I could talk about this all day. So you're going to have to stop me. Um, uh, just to talk first about what Craig has said there on the long term leasing, right? Because this is a bang, a drum I bang in Dublin City Council at pretty much every single meeting and every meeting of the Housing Policy Commission. Long term leasing is a disastrous idea. Um, and just this month, what I raised two points uh, Dublin City Council are committing themselves to providing 2,500 homes through long term leasing. Uh, in 2022 and 2023, right? Um, so, I mean, that's a huge uh, number, obviously. And at 95% of the average Dublin rent, that comes in at a 26,000 or 26,360,000 spend per annum on long-term leasing for those homes. So it's absolutely astronomical if you calculate that over the life cycle of a mortgage at 20 years or 25 years. Um, so, I mean, that's hugely problematic. And I do want to say I noticed for the first time this month as well that 60 plus percent of the long-term leasing they're currently committed to in Dublin is in the Dublin North Central area. So for some extraordinary reason, Dublin North Central is being singled out uh, for long-term leasing. Um, and when I raised this with the manager, I was told it was a coincidence. Um, now, I mean, 66% is a fairly extraordinary coincidence to my mind. Um, so going back to the O'Devany Oscar trainer stuff, uh, I'm going to start here because I've never really discussed this publicly, by putting my hands up and saying I voted for the original O'Devany deal. And it's the only thing I've done on the council that I really regret. Uh, I was very new to the council and I was, I suppose, browbeaten and coerced by the management into believing that if we didn't support it, it would not be possible to deliver homes on that site or that the delay would be enormous. Uh, I, I will put my hands up and say I absolutely made the wrong decision, but I made it in good faith, trying to do the right thing. Um, and then two weeks later, I did support the motion to rescind it, but unfortunately the majority didn't, so it still went through the council. Um, so what we were told at the time with O'Devany was the usual standard management line of, if you don't vote for this, it will be five years before we have anything else back on the table, which is what they always threaten, and which is what they're threatening now with Oscar Trainer, right? But what's actually happened is, uh, first of all, it's taken, uh, the line was actually used by the management, they will be breaking ground by summer, meaning summer of 2020. Here we are in 
the end of 2021, and there was an article this week that Bartra, the developer concerned, have um, are, are taking a judicial review to the High Court because on board Planola have tried to put a condition on them that they can't sell uh, their apartments to investment funds. So this is now subject to another delay and a delay that is very obviously calculated just to maximise their profit on all the very many additional units they've put in um, above the original plan. So I think that's kind of extraordinary. And I think it's really, really relevant in the context of the Oscar Trainer vote, which has now been moved to the 22nd of November, um, because, again, what we are told is if you do not vote for this, it'll be five years, it'll be eight years, it'll never happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That a private developer is a much faster way of delivering this housing. And this court case that Barter are taking after a huge delay on submitting planning permission, which we're told is because of COVID, but which was actually because they were reworking the entire planning permission to maximise their profits. And um, what we're told is that the private developers, you know, private developers will deliver quicker. And this absolutely gives the lie to that. You know, they are no more interested in quickly delivering on housing. Um, you know, it's so like, you know, with Oscar Trainer, we have to stick to our guns. And Catcher, we have to I, I, I need to come in on I need to come in on it because ultimately. Mel Reynolds predicted what was going to happen with with O'Devney. He said they would they would go away and they'd come back with um where where they were going to put in eighty six units it'd become one hundred and fourteen where they were going to become x amount of you know and in effect just on on just I, I believe it's the deal effectively on Oscar Trainer as proposed now even despite that they've lost a vote on it previously let's not rem- let's not forget that this is anti democratic what's happening right now they lost the vote the deal currently again as mel reynolds puts it is a site worth 51 million is going to change hands for 14 million it's a windfall um it's an absolute windfall and if that becomes a template and craig i know you've you're doing work on that but it does seem very much that that is the template because they're saying these are the, these are the organizations, the funds, the international funds that have the money. Well, then I don't think that it's good value for taxpayers. And 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 Craig, I I can't wait to read the piece that you get, but that's my sense of it. Yeah, but I think the position of the government, um, and if you listen to what the teacher has said in the last few months, when he mentions ideological battles and things like that. I think they're just interested in getting supply into the market, no matter at, at, at whatever cost, you know. Um, if that has to be funds building them or funds back to building them, uh, I don't really think they mind. Uh, I think the underlying uh, factor is supply and they're willing to address that by any means possible is my understanding of it at the, at, at the moment. And I think people might not like that, um, like the story that I had yesterday, because it means that, you know, we're inviting these these funds to come into the market to make a massive profit. But I think their their view as well if we can increase supply in any capacity, well, the end will just by the means, essentially. I, I I know, I think, actually, that's the Ronan Lyons argument that we've had it with Ronan, where he talks about the fact that, you know, all supply it will, will, will eventually trickle down. And unfortunately, in the history of the state, we've never seen excess supply reduce prices. It's just never happened. Not even when we were building 80,000 homes a year, prices were still going up. So um, it's not a rational market. Housing is not a rational market. Um, Mark? Martin, um, did you want to come in? I just wanted to move us on a bit, Tony, because on the front of every newspaper this Sunday is a story about uh, Paddy Groves and, and the, Paddy Groves, uh, <laughs> Paddy Cosgrove, and the uh, Web Summit. And I think it's interesting. I think it's very interesting if you, from a whistleblower's point of view, um, any whistleblower that gets, gets a chance to speak to a wider audience is going to take it both hands. Um, I know that from experience. So I'm kind of amused why everybody is so convulsed that this happened. Um, it's a, to me, it's a bit of shoot the messenger and shoot the message. Uh, rather than look at this as an opportunity for a whistleblower to to expand and, and to tell their story, and it is a whistleblowing story, I just think it's very strange that the entire... 
media on the Sunday has gone on the attack. I think that's a very strange phenomenon. Well, can I, all right, I think, first of all, I don't think you're being fair, but ultimately we have to we have to acknowledge first time we ever did a live show, we sat on stage with Paddy Cosgrave, right? And it's not Paddy Groves. So we know so 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 we know Paddy. Um we're, we're Oh yeah, we're, yeah, yeah. No, no. We also know Mick Clifford very well. And Mick Clifford wrote the piece yesterday that 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 enraged social media. Um but whatever way you, you wherever you sit on it, I suppose for me, two things. Um, there's the, the only thing worse than being than not than being talked about is not being talked about. Okay, so it's Web Summit is now talked about again. And I, I, Paddy, is a big boy. He can take it on the chin, whatever way he wants to deal with it. I listen to you and I accept to a degree what you're saying about whistleblowers, because the more interesting person on that stage was was John Ty, who who runs Whistleblower Aid, who himself left bloody uh, US uh, security services, you know, and, and and faced threats of of revealing state secrets. He's much more interesting than than any of the other stuff. And the work that they've done in terms of explode expose expo- exposing the Ukraine whistleblower, working with the now the Facebook whistleblower. That's the stuff that 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 absolutely but again it's Paddy's platform. Let him do whatever he wants to do with it. Um, it, 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 it I was was I was I shocked? Yes. Um, but should I have been? Probably not. No, I, I think there's an element of he has become the bet noir of of, of uh, a certain group, and he will remain the bet noir. But in essence, it's a whistleblower story. Um, I don't like to see that that whistleblowers and those who help whistleblowers get attacked in any circumstance of personal interest in this. I work with a lot of whistleblowers and they should be able to stand and speak their ground without ending up on the front page of the newspaper for all the wrong reasons. Well, I just I just come in there briefly. I mean, um, there are legal papers that have been lodged. So, I mean, that's what makes it newsworthy as opposed to yep. there being I think, a conspiracy against Paddy Cosby. There are internal disputes from Web Summit um, that have made it themselves to the courts. Um, papers have been filed, so I think that is actually a legitimate reason um, for the... A, a, a 100%, Craig, because this has been ongoing between cases taken in the US and no cases filed uh, here domestically. So, And Tom Lyons in the currency has been covering it for a long time. Mm. So it is newsworthy. It absolutely is newsworthy. Um, but the some of the stuff that tries to look at... The psyche of Paddy Cosgrave, I just think, is a bit silly. I mean, that's a bit silly. Like, let it. <laughs> if we're going to do that, it's his party, and if you know, it's his football. So if he wants to kick the football into the crowd, he that's that's what he chose to do. Um, and I do think there's 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 something to, there's something there. I don't know, Martin, about your phrase about him being the bet noir, but I do think it's kind of interesting that some people are more upset with the messenger than they are with the message. Um, and again, I go back to Mick Clifford's piece and I, I remind listeners to check it out because the line that matters most, he said, in a functioning democracy, Leo Varadkar would have resigned. And in the corporate world, by the way, he would have had to stand aside while an investigation was, was taking place as well. So, you know, whatever the motivations, they remain the facts. Yeah, I agree with you, Tony. I do agree. And I don't like to see uh, for anybody, actually, for anybody in any circumstance that their their mental health or their uh, where they stand will be questioned just for making a stand. I don't think that's right. I think we should avoid that as much as we can. Um, I, look, I, we, 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 we'll cover that now again, but we'll, we'll move on. I just there's a couple of things coming up. Um, but I suppose one thing I'd like to get maybe Craig and Catherine to comment on is because it's been going on for so long now, but now we're seeing the state have now come in and they said, we've, you know, we, we had a rent freeze during COVID. We now can't have a rent freeze. We had the 4% rent pressure zones. They weren't working. We'll link it to inflation. Unfortunately, inflation is now somewhere around 3.7 to 5 point something because we don't have the up-to-date figures. And now they've come back with 2%. Um, Catherine, to you maybe first, you, I know you guys were proposing a rent freeze, but where where is this going now? Whereby, you know, we're again fixing in guaranteed returns of two percent minimum um, to 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 the to the to the, to the funds in effect. Yes, yeah, so you're right, uh, Tony. We did propose a rent freeze, and we're also very much conscious that a rent freeze is not enough. That freezing rents at a really high level is is not enough either. Um, 
So I suppose from our point of view, there are a few things that need to happen. Uh, we, we need the referendum on the right to housing that was proposed in the programme for government committed to and has gone nowhere since to happen, because until that, the government will continue to say they can't interfere with rents because of private property protections in the constitution. So I think that's an absolutely key piece. So that's that's number one. And number two is we need mass fast-tracked, quick delivery of a huge volume of cost rental flooded into the market to bring down the prices uh, that we're seeing. So, I mean, number one, referendum on the right to housing. Number two, proper, not delivered through private developers, cost rental that changes the baseline rent of what it costs to live in this city. The scope of that would need to be nearly delivering about 18,000 cost rental units per year on average for about five mm. years to start bringing down mm. rents and Craig if I, I think ask, we've said sort of 10,000 to start with yeah I know that's that's not the, enough but the government's housing for all plan is 2,000 a well, year well, well, which they're, is they're so gonna, far they're, off they're going to deliver 400 I believe in at, at one stage in the next 12 months and I, I, I'm conscious uh, Leisha Nalen is in the audience she probably knows the figures a lot better than I do um, but, but Craig when you when we talk about the right to housing which is an interesting point by Catherine the only blocker to me again seems to be coming from one side of the house and that seems to be from the Fine Gael side because it was something Fine Fall supported and the Green supported and it's gone nowhere yeah, but if you talk about trying to, to boost capacity like that, I mean, I think it's a bit too simplistic to let's just say, let's have 10,000 new cost rental properties in the market, you know, as soon as, soon as possible. I th- just think it's what what I'm being told from separate economists is that like the local authorities don't have the capacity to do that. Um, this is a argument that goes back and forth. I guess we'll see now what the capacity of the uh, local authorities is because they've been given such ambitious um, direct bill targets. But it, it's it's just a bit when, when you when you look at it in terms of an overview overview perspective, you just wonder how it's going to be done because even with the target of twenty three thousand homes a year, which isn't going to be met this year, I think that the estimate is between eighteen and twenty thousand. Making up that difference, it just doesn't seem realistic to me. Um. For a number of points, and and but especially the targets that are going to be needed through the direct bills from local authorities, and even if you look at the labour shortage, I mean, again, that's a massive, massive issue that I really think the government is going to struggle to address. I agree, which I agree with you to a large extent, but I also have to counter that and say, two thousand and seven, we built ninety three thousand units in one year, so it, so. We don't have the capacity there now, but to be talking about thirty five thousand, Craig, I think is is. It's actually something that's doable. And, oh, and also, you know, we talk about dereliction. We talk about, you know, properties available above retail units and commercial units. We've all of these other tools in the toolkit. And we just, yeah, I, I, I actually think the idea of maybe get, well, we need 40,000, 50,000. I think that's actually nonsense. I don't think the demand is there as much as people think it is. I think we we, we probably don't even need the full 35,000 at the moment if we were to sit down and, you know, run the numbers with the economists. But I do think, it's more doable than, than say for example, um, dealing with climate climate change. You can, I think we can, I think we can do this. And you're right. There's a skills shortage, but I mean the gaps can be can be done. And for, and and actually, technology has moved on. There's a bloody warehouse just outside. Um, I think it's out, outside Nottingham that builds builds the the, the units for 140,000. So I mean, Martin, sorry, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I think I think uh, Craig is absolutely right. There is a skills shortage and there is a deficit there. But I think at some stage, local authorities have to start filling that gap. Simply mm-hmm. sitting there and saying, no, we can't do it because we don't have the people. Well, you've got to start taking on the people. You've got to start training the people. And considering what we're facing, we have so many retrofits and we have so much building to do in this country. They need to kind of invest in people for the future. There is plenty of work if they start taking the people on now. There is decades and decades of work for them to do. You know, no, I think that's fine, right? And they obviously are investing in training up new apprentices and all the rest of it. But the, the counterpoint to that as well is that we've lost so many workers um, since the pandemic who've come back to the country of origin where there's suddenly a lot more work than there was here previously. So again, the gap has become greater again. You should do so much more again. On the point of local authorities, I mean, people would say to you that local authorities have spent the last decade being stripped of their capacity to do building in terms of 
architects, engineers, all the rest of it. That's a slow process to build that up again. And I know if, if you had Dara O'Brien on here, you'd probably say something like, we can't do this overnight. And, and we'd all say, you know, how many housing ministers do we have to hear saying that? But that is the argument they put forward in terms of the local authority side of it. And that's why I think that, that they feel their, their best chance of boosting supply is just leaving it to the private market. Catherine, you wanted to come in there. Just quickly on the local authority piece, Mark, and if you don't mind, um, like one thing that stood out for me when I got elected two and a half years ago is DCC telling us that they could only advance one major housing project at a time. So they could only work on O'Devany or Oscar Trainer or St. Michael's in succession rather than um, concurrently. Um, and I think in the midst of the kind of housing crisis we've now had for like a decade, that's absolutely mind blowing. And yet they simultaneously tell us that resources and money are are not an issue. So I, I agree with you that like it's not an easy ask. Obviously, there's a construction shortage and we're asking many different people to do the same things between retrofitting and construction and all of that. But, you know, the construction workers are there to build hotels and the construction workers are there to build uh, long-term letting units for uh, investment funds. So maybe it's about how we prioritise, how we use what we have. Um, and certainly, yeah, like the local authority that I work in needs to build up the staff capacity to manage multiple projects at a time and be able to deliver those. There is no doubt about that. And that should have been happening five years ago at a minimum, you know. I think we can all agree on that. And I, I'm afraid I'm going to have to wrap it here because we're running out of time. But it doesn't bode well that we can't uh, ramp up on our housing when we have big, bigger issues. And, and climate action is a much bigger issue sitting there. You know, we are going to have to get to grips with all of these problems. I'd like to thank Emma D'Souza, Catherine Stoker, Craig Hughes, Tony Groves. It's been another great Sunday show. And just to remind everybody, the live show is on on Wednesday. There are a few tickets remaining. It's fully seated, so you can log on patreon.com forward slash Tordeshack and you'll find all the details there. Tony. No, no, we let people go, but I just want to say one thing. Does anybody know that this is the anniversary of uh, total uh, Four Seasons Total Landscaping? Um, the, the, it's also the anniversary ar- ar- arguably of, the greatest moment in 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 the, de- the democratic history of the U- United States. You know, it's also the anniversary of Mary Robinson becoming president today. Uh, which that was doesn't, a big that doesn't count. No, that doesn't count. <laughs> you, you, it was much better to have it the other way. Um, and and it will never, will never, will never see such a highlight again. Um, no, thanks for listening, folks. Uh, we will be back if anybody wants to chat. Uh, we'll be back later on this afternoon because we are going to be talking. Um, what's going on with Professor Colin Harvey with, and the DUP later. Uh, we also have um, uh, Dr. Uh, Sh- Sheikh Umar, who is, you know, the, a fabulous speaker on yeah. on what's on, on his community. And that's that's coming early this week. And we're and we have another um, podcast lined up with the Fight Inequality Alliance as well. So, so there's lots coming out and uh, it keeps me busy. Martin's not even aware of these things yet. Look at his face, as you can tell. Uh, Craig, Catherine, thanks for joining us, and we will talk to you all very, very soon. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.